8 to 10 hour work days, 13 to 15 patients in a work day, 48 average weeks a year you're working, over a 25-year career. As a PT, how do you do all that and prevent burnout? Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. Welcome back to the Therapist in Motion podcast series. Uh, I'm your host, Jennifer Lee, for this one, hosting from Goodyear, Arizona, my home clinic. Today, I'm joined by Dan Mariofsky and the director of our Scottsdale Clinic, Tori Foster. Thanks for joining me, guys. Thanks for having me back, Dan. Thanks for having me, Jen. Absolutely. So we're going to pick up on part two of our burnout Series. We had done the burn, the first burnout episode was episode number 26. I highly encourage anybody that's feeling stressed or feeling like you don't really know how to manage your stress in your day um, or any aspect of your life, actually, to go back and listen to episode 26. But what we had talked about was that on average, there's seven years that people, that PTs specifically, start to feel the first signs of burnout. We talked about what is burnout? What does the APTA define burnout as? Um, the difference between frustration on the daily in the clinic and, and what is actual burnout, and the importance of reflecting through different aspects of your life, your personal life, your professional life, your spiritual life, on how you're doing in those different, different aspects. We also talked about strategies to prevent burnout. And finally, we wrapped up with how do you recognize burnout? And one of the main reasons we talked about or one of the main factors that we found in recognizing burnout that I think probably each of us has dealt with is you start to find yourself cruising in neutral. You're not really critically thinking through your day. Your flow sheet's staying stagnant. Um, everything's kind of staying the same and it's starting to get dull for you. So what I want to start out with today is talking about how do we prevent burnout day to day? What are ways that we can stay stimulated? And Tori, since we didn't have you on the last podcast, you um, you have 17 years of experience. I want you to give us, have you experienced burnout? When was it? Why do you think it happened? And then what are your tools for staying engaged <laughs> through the day with your patients? Well, that's a, a big question uh, to answer there, Jen. Uh, let it me <laughs> first off give you a shout out because I thought the first uh, burnout podcast was excellent. So if any listeners haven't listened, I do highly encourage you to listen to that and then maybe come back and listen to this one. Uh, but let me take you back actually to PT school. And yeah, that was a long time ago for me. Uh, but when I was going through uh, the curriculum and got into my clinicals, I started to second guess if PT was the right profession for me. Um, I was going through and I would work with a patient and then I'd be handed a, a flow sheet that had a knee flow sheet and a shoulder flow sheet. And I'm like, this is kind of boring. Oh man! And I'm just yeah. thinking to myself, you know, did I choose the right career path? And during my last clinical, thank goodness, I had an excellent clinical instructor and the environment was very positive. We got people off the table and we looked at them on a more functional basis and we, we really engaged with them on what their functional goals happened to be. I'm like, this is what it's supposed to be about. And that's why uh, not long after I was in my career, I came across Tim Spooner and talked about his uh, treatment philosophy here at Spooner PT. And I've been with the company for now 16 plus years. And so it's been great to really be in an environment that allows you some autonomy to really engage with the patient. Now, are there moments where I get those that stress and that frustration? Absolutely. And when I kind of look at it, break it up into, you know, personal stressors, your um 
time with the patient stressors documentation. As a leader, what are the challenges you have there to make sure you're creating the culture and, and building the practice as well? Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that go into that. I think part of that is I don't take a lot of time off. And I've had to learn through maybe some challenges that my wife does a good job of saying, hey, let's go do this. And I'm like, oh, how do I work around that? And she's like, nope, you're going to take the time off. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and, and, and I do that. And it does re-energize you. And I think that we're given paid time off to give us that opportunity to re-energize so we can truly give ourselves to our patients and not only try to engage them in mind, body, spirit, we're really trying to make sure we're doing that for ourselves as well. So I think when I come in, I try to give that same energy to the first patient as the last patient. And in order to do that, I have to be able to come through those doors and really give it my all. And our profession is not for everybody. So when I look at that, it's something where when I look at it, what am I doing through problem solving? What am I doing through my manual techniques and exercise? And when I go back to that first experience in PT, that flow sheet better be dynamic. And I think that when patients come in and they're coming in, are we asking them questions about how they're doing not only between therapy and how they respond to those manual techniques, but, you know, how is the program going for you? Is anything easy, moderate, or hard? And we start talking about tweaks to the program. There's all kinds of, you know, uh, changes that we can make to influence that. And we can talk more about that throughout the podcast. But when I look at that, there's so much that we can do to make every day unique. It's not treating everybody. Everybody comes in with a knee pain problem. Isn't treated the exact same way because they have their own unique bodies, their own unique goals. And I think that's so important that we really engage them in that difference. That's awesome. Um, One thing that I heard you say that I've also been guilty of is not taking time off. I think as therapists, we want to own, or at least me, I'll speak for myself, but I feel like we want to own our patients. We don't want to miss sessions with them. We take this very seriously. It's, you know, if we're not here, we're letting people down. We're loading other people's schedules. And there's a lot of um, frustration and anxiety that's attached to that for me. So I found out, I found out the hard way that I wasn't taking time off because of all those reasons. And I needed to actually start to plan my time off in advance to take it and give myself time away and, you know, for mental health and all of those reasons. It's just, it's something that unfortunately I've had to learn by, by failure, but that's pretty much how I've learned a lot of things through my life. Um, but I definitely appreciate that you, that you brought that up. What I didn't hear and I want to, I'm curious about is, do you feel besides the frustration component of just day in, day out, do you feel like you've ever really truly burnt out since you've been practicing or no? Well, I think that we, let me say, for me personally, I've had moments where I'm saying, ah, you know, you use the words like I f- I'm feeling, you know, almost burned out. And when you start using those words, I think it's time that, okay, you have to reflect on why. Okay. Is it, yep. is it just a busy time of year? What's going on personally? And so when I've had those moments, I've, I've had to really find out what I have to do to take a step back and take a look at the big picture and what I can do to make a change. And I've, I've had those moments. Absolutely. Um, and sometimes it's finding out what you like to do outside of work that can take that stress away. Sometimes it's redefining how you do things internally to maybe delegate certain responsibilities um, and find better success within your day-to-day. Because to say there's work-life balance, I'm, I've been doing this for over 17 years. I haven't found it yet. I have mom- <laughs> I have these brief moments where I have like a day where I feel like I was relatively balanced there. And then the next day it's like, okay, something else happens and, and it kind of throws it out of whack. But I think that it is a, a regular basis where you kind of have to come back to the foundation. Now, 
one of the things I've done over time is perspective. You know, we have to be thankful for what we have in life, I think. And this is a real big picture concept. But, you know, do I have my health? Do I have a roof over my head? Do I have a job? And when I look at my job, not only do I have a job, do I have something that really excites me? So I kind of play a game in my head of if I didn't have the, if somebody pulled the rug out from under me and I didn't do PT, what would I do? And then I'm like, oh, there's a moment of panic. I'm wow. like, oh gosh, I really enjoy what I do. Time out. Let's bring this back <laughs> and say, all right, I enjoy what I do. Now let me come back into and find out what it is that's going to help re-energize me. So I think when you kind of take a step back and in your first podcast, I think you said 70% of people aren't in their ideal job or occupation. You know, you have to ask yourself, is this the right job? Pull that rug out and kind of pretend for a second and then come back and it gives you some good perspective. That's awesome. Thanks for that feedback. That was incredible. Um, Dan, what do you do to keep yourself stimulated day to day with your, how many years you got? Eight? Yeah, I've been out a little over eight. So, I mean, I think... You guys have alluded to a few things as well about managing time off and things like that. And, um, you, you know, if, if you have a, if your place of employment has paid time off as one of their benefits, they have it there because they want you to use it. <laughs> um, even though yeah. you might get outside pressures or have the perception of outside pressures from your director slash administrative staff, they wouldn't give that as a benefit if they really didn't want you to use it, right? They know these Absolutely. statistics. They know these statistics that you've highlighted. They know the the volume demand. They know the 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 patient demand. They know the average tenure of our professionals in this career. And as one of our administrators in the company, I know that we don't we, we want to buck that trend. We want to make sure that our therapists are in this profession for longer and break that average slash make that average go up with this generation of physical therapists. Um, yeah. f- for me personally, you know, I- I've definitely felt the signs of burnout um, or the symptoms of burnout. I guess that would be a symptom of burnout, not a sign of burnout. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I- I've felt it. And I think it, it, you know, putting it into perspective, like Tori mentioned of, okay, what's the autonomy that I have in my job? What's the autonomy I have in my patients? What's the facility that I work in? What do I have outside of work to help me recharge? What do I have inside work to help me recharge? And one of my colleagues, um, Andrew actually, um, who's a regular participant in our podcast, kind of one day was like, you know what? I see your flow sheets are stagnating. I said, you're right. He goes, okay. Here's your challenge for the next period of time. Look at your flow sheet. See what plane of motion you're dominant in. And challenge yourself and your technician every single day to add exercises in other planes as long as it's successful for the, for the patient. And when, I started to, and when I started to do that, my technician and I's interaction and my interactions with other colleagues of, hey, what, what's your favorite exercise for this? Hey, Tori. I'm really struggling with this, this, this patient in this movement. What are your go-to exercises? And then you start to see their excitement. And when you see one of your colleagues or technicians getting excited, it's really hard not to follow their excitement. Um, sure. And, and when you do that four, five, six days in a row, I think it automatically gets you out of that funk. Um, yeah. 
so that's that that's what I've done. I've relied on people in my own four walls, clinic four walls, to challenge me when they start to see those things, when they start to see those oh, Dan's stressed, Dan's starting to you know, be be tired, be grumpy, whatever. They'll they'll kind of give me a nudge in a positive direction, which is huge. Yeah. The people I worry about are our listeners and our colleagues that are in a facility where they only have one or two other people with them, you know, yeah. and, and how do we help them with thought processes and opportunities to challenge themselves internally? So I, I think that's yeah. something that we can get to. Yeah. Um, for those of you that are listening that have liked the little clinical tidbits that we've been already dropping about the planes and, and things like that, we're going to wrap it up by talking a lot more about that. Um, but I want to come back to, I've done a little bit of re reflection on how do I keep myself stimulated because I'm definitely an introvert. Um, if given the opportunity, I'm a low energy type of person. Um, so for me, I've learned again through failure that I need to be present through my day. I tend to get inside my own head. I default to a negative setting and everything ends up stressing me out. And so being on the outside, being aware, being present with my coworkers, with my patients, um, thinking critically about all aspects of my treatment with my patients. And that's not just what am I doing with them exercise-wise, but what does my body language look like towards them right now? Um, what is my actual language that I'm using in education towards them sound like? Actually critically thinking about every move that I'm making through the day to stay engaged and make sure that they understand and are bought into the process as much as possible, it gets me excited about how I'm directing my care. Um, and then in addition to that, I've mentioned it before in podcasts, but just coming in early to prep my day. I have to do that. I have to come in early, prep my schedule, figure out who's, who's progress notes, see who's been progressed recently, who's regressed, get ideas in my head for exercises for people, um, and just kind of get my day in my head before I get going. I have to do that. Otherwise, I kind of start in panic mode, uh, for lack of better terms. But if we go back to the exercises and the exercise prescription, um, I always talk to my students that I have about if you're going to give an exercise, I don't want you to just flippantly give an exercise to a patient because it's easy to print out AGP for. Um, I want you to have reasons. I want you to have at least five reasons why you're giving this patient this exercise. So do you guys, on average, how many reasons do you think you could come up with for why you give any particular patient an exercise on a day? What's your thought process behind it? Would you ask that question one more time, please? Yeah, absolutely. So on average, how many reasons do you think you could come up with that you're giving a particular exercise to a patient? In other words, how much critical thought goes into each exercise that you give? I don't know if I'd come up with a number, but one of the most common things you'll hear in the clinic, may I look at that flow sheet? Because I want to constantly analyze if what I'm doing is appropriate from amount of reps, height, resistance, plane of motion. Um, is there a different surface I want to put them on? Um, and as I constantly think about what they want to do functionally, it makes me tweak the program. Why is it always two to three sets of 10? Why are we not giving them a range of, I want you to do between this many and this many, speed of movement. When I'm going through these things, I'm constantly thinking about what they need to accomplish from a mobility, stability, endurance, balance, whatever it might be that I'm going through. And as I'm constantly thinking, the patient, I'm doing it in front of the patient. So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking out loud. I'm like, well, I know you want to work on this and this exercise works this, this, and this, but is that easy, moderate, or hard for you? 
Uh, it's getting easier. All right, we're going to tweak this, and this is why. And as I'm doing that, the patient knows why they're doing it, and they're more engaged with the purpose movement. And that usually is something also is helpful as we're moving forward because they constantly feel the value and the time they're coming in, and they know that we're engaged in what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Awesome. <clears throat> so I'll go at that question as well. Um, I wouldn't necessarily, kind of like Tori, I don't know that I'd necessarily put a number behind it. But if I can't articulate why I'm giving that exercise, I probably shouldn't be giving that exercise. <laughs> um, and, and, and I'll flip that as well. You know, I mean, you know, if we go back to our CPT code discussion, if you can't articulate and, and have an understanding of what the CPT codes are from the American Medical Association, then it makes it really hard to connect it to billing. Um, and then it makes yeah. it even harder to connect it to documentation. And I think those are things that definitely play into a person's burnout because they get so frustrated from a documentation standpoint. But I think it goes back to oftentimes they're going through the motion and they're not thinking about why they gave an exercise to a person. So I think it's, it's something good for me to reflect on about coming up with three to five reasons why I gave this exercise – and I don't want to default to to increase proprioceptive input, to increase kinesthetic sense, right. to increase range of motion, and in, to increase strength. I think those are two generic cop out answers. But mm -hmm. if we if we help connect it to other things that we've discussed throughout our our podcast series, that will help some therapists because that's the regiment that they go through. Is well, if I don't know why I'm giving it, I probably don't know what I'm going to bill, and then it's going to make it really difficult for me to document it. And if, it's all a vicious cycle. <laughs> if I can interject here, we haven't talked about, it, but I think one of the biggest stressors that therapists have is that documentation. And we have to be oh, yeah. realistic and understand that that takes a lot of time to do and tends to be, we love the time of the patient. Like, well, I don't have enough time on my patient. I have to do my doc. So I think what sometimes happens is, is what's the easy thing? All right, well, I'm testing and I'm maybe doing some manual on the exercise. Oh, that's good. And I can get back and do my documentation where we really have to find that balance, and it's so hard, there's that word again, of getting the time with the patient while still completing the necessary documentation, get paid for the services that we are providing. Because we are a service-oriented profession. We got in this hopefully to help people and because we enjoy it. But at the same time, we're a business, and we have to get paid for the services we provide. And reimbursement is so hard in our profession. So documentation has to be a part of that, of finding that workflow and making sure that you do that. And so many times it's easier to do A, B, or C instead of doing that note. And what happens you end up getting behind on the notes and your stress increases. As that stress increases, that burnout word might come out easier. So it is something we have to That's be, you know, we have to be realistic and check in. When the stress is high, when as a leader, as when people come to me and they start using that, hey, I'm getting burned out, I ask a question, what, what's going on? And when I ask open a question, a lot of times there's a personal component to the professional stress. And I sometimes see those yes. professionals take it out on colleagues are really good with their patients, but you can kind of feel as a colleague when that's happening, that you kind of take a step back and ask a question. And when a colleague can kind of point it out, the person's like, oh, I didn't even realize I was coming off that way. So I think that's one of the things that Dan talked to is in your environment, are your colleagues helping you out? And I think that that really helps you reflect on, are you getting to a point where maybe it's not optimal for your situation? Yeah. No, that's awesome. Yeah. That's and, beautiful. And, and Jen, before I ask you a question, I do want to make one other comment about that. That, mm -hmm. that I think is is huge to the environment is how much fun are you having in your day? 
How, yeah. you know, are, you, are you getting smiles from your patients? Are you getting smiles from your technician? Are you getting smiles from your colleagues? Are you smiling? Are you trying to do something that is going to allow you as the treating therapist to continue to give the same energy as Tori alluded to to the first patient and then that same energy to the last patient or Jen, as you alluded to, to try and have that focus of your the highest level of focus in your brain every patient that you see on your schedule. And I really think in order for that to happen, there has to be a level of fun and laughter and um, active engagement from your your colleagues and your patients to help you, quote unquote, re-energize before the next patient walks in the door. thousand percent. If I can compliment that, I think when you – Look at what we do as a profession. And in the first podcast, you talked about some people get burned out because they get frustrated maybe from a certain level of lack of success. And I think when you look at that, we help so many people. And there might be that one patient and you help everybody else and they're doing so much better that you're going home thinking about, oh, that person's not doing as good as what I want. And that really weighs on you because we really care. We truly care. Um so I think when we look at it, we have to take a step back. We get so many thank yous when somebody walks out the door. Thank you very much. And we're just so used to it. We say, oh, thanks. You're, you know, you're welcome. Bye. But really, that person's genuinely saying, I appreciate your effort that you provided with me today. Or we have net promoter scores. Or we have you know people that write us emails or give us cards or these snacks. You know, Holidays look out. Here they come. But you know, I think we really <laughs> have to take a step back when you get burned out and say, I'm helping a lot of people. And there's so much appreciation that's out there. Are we really taking a moment to process that? And I think that's so important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I and in what way are we helping people? Because I've had plenty of patients that I physically don't make feel better, but they still come back to me time and time again because they enjoy the experience here and they're moving better by simply coming, even if they still have pain. Yeah. I 100% agree with that. All right, Jen. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a question. <clears throat> Bring it on. When you are looking at that day-to-day interaction, that, that patient flow sheet, what factors do you start to consider when you're going to make modifications or tweak that exercise program? Um, this is going to be a long-winded answer. <laughs> so at my eval, um, I put down on the flow sheet because I'm not somebody that will go back and look at my computer and look at initial eval and, and follow-up notes very frequently. I just don't do that. So I'll write Slacker. things on my flow sheet. I know, right? (laughs) I'll write things on my flow sheet to tip me off. And so I'll have what my goals are at the end of eval and follow-up visits, and I'll have what the patient's goals are. And the patient's goals will be they want to control their pain. They want to be able to walk. They want to be able to golf. They want to be able to swim. And I'll remember, oh, yeah, so-and-so did this. And that cues me to who they were. And then in my section, my PT goals, I'll write, Noted decreased right thoracic rotation, noted calcaneal, limited calcaneal inversion, eversion, or whatever those things are. As I try to write in those little sections uh, something that I can go after manually, something that I that is more functional, something um, to kind of cue me proprioceptively um, and give myself different, because it helps me for billing too, give myself different avenues to go down with exercise prescription and as I'm filling out my flow sheet as they're coming in session after session I want to see that all those factors I put down are getting incorporated and that their their flow sheet's looking more like what they told me they needed to do the first day or what their goals were the first day Um, I rarely go ever two or three sessions without changing something Um, probably I don't go two without changing I will go one 
um, just to make sure somebody's successful with any progressions that I've made. Um, but outside of that, everything's looking more, does it look more like what you want to do? Is it more successful than it was before? Can I tweak a plane that you were previously unsuccessful with and now it's successful? Um, and that helps with the documentation too, because that, boom, that's your note right there. That's your objective and, you know, that's your assessment. Um, to answer your question. I guess it wasn't as long as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Jenna, what I heard you say there is that that flow sheet is regularly changing as hopefully the patient is improving as well. And if they're not, you yes. should still be changing it to make the um, modifications necessary to help them be more successful. And I think that if you look at a flow sheet over time, you just pick somebody's up, it should look different. It should. So I think that yep. what I hear there should resonate with a lot of people. Absolutely. I think where some people get stuck is, okay, how do I change it up? And and if I could have a grid for how to change things up, then that might be easier. But I don't really have a step-by-step process, and I get confused. And how would I change this? And especially as a new clinician, thinking about exercise and progression can be daunting, or at least it was for me, still is sometimes. Um, and so what I want to talk about and, and cruise into is this idea, concept you guys have both mentioned called tweakology. It's really the DNA of movement. It's 10 different observational essentials of movement that if you take them and you tweak them and you personalize them, like Tori had mentioned earlier, make it personal towards the patient's goals, you can work with any and every one of these variables in different ways. So I want to go through each of the 10 and then just take a minute for both of you to give me your feedback on maybe how you use these day-to-day or any clinical pearls that you've gained um, through the specific variables. Sound good? Sounds good. Awesome. So the very first one is called environment. Environment is going to be what you're using, what tool you're using. Uh, it's going to be where the patient's actually located, um, the type of machine that you're using, anything like that. What do you guys, how do you incorporate that through the day? So I look at that in in our facility, we have a we have a lot of different options. So first and foremost, we have obviously our treatment floor. We have a treatment table. We have a pool, which is a unique environment. We have a yep. we have a stretch cage. We have artificial turf outside, and then mm-hmm. um, you know the typical like Airx pads, Dynadiscs, Bosu balls. Those are the things that I look at from the environments in my uh, physio ball in my my setting that I have available for my patients to utilize, challenge, modify exercises based upon, like you said, the needs that they have and the goals that they have. Love it. Yeah, I can't say much more. I think Dan did an excellent job. One of the easier things is to go outside, right? You're just changing some of the things that are going on. Let's say you're taking somebody that needs better balance. You're taking them through varied surfaces, which is functional for them out in the community. Uh, you know, it kind of goes in environment slash position, but are they wearing their shoes? Are they barefoot? What's the surface like an Eric's pad that you're trying to, you know, create that change in that environment that allows them to get different type of feedback into their system? Um, you know, we, we talk about, it's a room, right? Well, there's a lot of different tweaks you can make in that environment to make it slightly different for their feedback. Yeah. The last tweak I'll mention about environment is, you know, in a lot of our clinics, it can be quote unquote busy, right? Or complicated. And I remember that from PT school when you're working with certain um, neuromuscular disorders that sometimes a busy environment is too overstimulating for a patient. 
So is taking yeah. them outside going to help them be more successful? The other thing is light. So do you turn the lights off? Do you close the blinds? Do you open the blinds? Um, that would be the last environment tweak that I could think of off the top of my head. Well, that's awesome, especially relative to your you know, vestibular people, people with concussions. I just had a patient the other day that I had to put in our darkest room because she has light sensitivity after a concussion. Yeah. Um, the things that I would say regarding environment would be, like we mentioned before, that if they're doing well, are you progressing those environments consistent with their goals? So if you have somebody that's going to be a long jumper, are you having them jump hopefully towards like an unstable surface or on an unstable surface at some point? Um, Are you moving towards what it's going to actually feel like and demand, what the body's going to demand in certain function? And then one of the biggest phrases I've heard when talking about environment that I like to try to remember for myself is use the tool, don't let it use you. Because I think we get in these modes of, oh, I've seen the body blade used for that exercise. And then the only thing that we think about, and my brain tends to kind of filter in that way, and I just have blinders on. But to remind myself, it doesn't have to be for that. It can be for anything and any way that you want to use it. Yeah. Um, so just, yeah. I think it's a great point that, you know, we get closer to that function. Maybe, I mean, for me, a passion of working with ACL patients you know, we can come out inside and do things. We can go out into our track and do things. But let's say they're out on the football field and grass. So one of my favorite moments as PT is when I took a late stage ACL patient over to a field and we did reaction drills on the grass in cleats with the football. And it was as close to being on the field against uh, his competitors as possible. And it was great feedback because you got to look at the comfort, the capability, and the confidence. That late stage, a lot of it is going to be that confidence. And we were able to prove to him his success. And once again, we changed the environment, meaning he was on that field, which was great. That's awesome. Okay, moving on to the second one. First one was environment. Second one is action. Action's like your your verb. What are you doing? What are different motions that you can do with people and how do you use those through the day? All right, let's see if I can think of all seven. So <laughs> <laughs> lunging, squatting, pushing, pulling, jumping. That's a modification of jumping, hopping, jopping. Uh, reaching one? Reaching and lifting. Lifting. Okay. Right? Did I get them all? I think I got them all. Because then there's a bunch I've, of variables that you could have with each, within each of those, right? Like you can have a single leg hop or a two foot to one foot jop or a two foot jump. Um. Time out, time out. Jop, you said jop, what's that? Two foot to one foot. <laughs> Two foot to one foot. So starting out with a jump, you're landing on one foot, which would be more like a hop, so it's a jop. Yep. I dig it. Um, you can okay. have walking, so you can have all sorts of modifications to walking and shuffling and all those other fun made-up words, like walk off okay. and things like that. But I think those <laughs> are I think those are the seven main actions. I, I don't know that I can come up with anything else. Did I miss any? All right. I don't think you did. I think it was great, Dan. Blind, I do. A blind I squirrel finds it out every once in a while. <laughs> 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 oh, my gosh. Tori, anything to add to the blind squirrel's feedback? I think <laughs> I think that we'll get into a little bit more of some of the other observational essentials. I think Dan did excellent on that. Yep, yep, I agree. And action is one of those things that, I mean, we're doing it 
all the time. It's one of the more blatant things. Like, obviously, we're having them squat. Obviously, we're having them lunch. But just remember that there's multiple things that people need to do, and sometimes they need to do them in combination. They need to be able to lunge and reach at the same time. Are you training them for that? Um, the next one is going to be position. Dan, can you name the different positions? Oh, you're good. All right. <laughs> so, standing, sitting, prone, sideline, kneeling. There's one more, right? Aren't there six different positions you can go into? Is half kneeling yep. different than kneeling? Nope, you forgot supine. Oh, supine. Duh. So there we go. There's the six positions. (laughs) So how do you use different positions through the day with your patients? Or or just give one example of how you might change a position with an exercise. Well, I think when we look at it, so many times we bias towards uh, supine, standing, sitting prone, right? And we don't maybe get into some of those other variations or combine them like you commented about. Uh, with action. And I think that's so important when we look at functional movement patterns. Um, also, uh, taking a look at that with the position is that, you know, what's functional for the person to make it more specific. So people talk about, well, lying down, how is that functional? Well, how many people comment about getting out of bed with discomfort or exactly. you know, playing with their grandkids on the floor, being able to get down and get him back up? There are so many things that we look at when we consider position, but are we truly varying it to their specific needs? Yeah, and awesome. I would I would say relative to position, I probably combine it most of the time with probably load, um, which I yeah. know you're getting to eventually. But <clears throat> if I change the verticality of prone um, to take away some of the full effect of gravity and change potentially the mass and momentum behind it, if I change the verticality of prone, can that help them be more successful by decreasing the load of gravity? So that's probably one example where maybe I'll put them, I'll I'll want them to do an elbows to hands kind of uh, modified push-up type thing. And I'll start them at the plinth and then I'll take them to the low mat table and then I'll take them all the way to the ground. As they increase in, in strength and success, to further challenge their system, as Tori alluded to, it may help them get off the floor. It may help them get back to their body weight workouts of doing push-ups. So that would be one example for me on changing position. Okay. Even within, um, real quick with that position, it's, yep. and we've, maybe we're going to hint on a little bit later, but when they're going down, they're getting into whatever position that be, let's say a squat, what are the different foot positions? So they might have a little bit of knee discomfort in one position. I make a little tweak and they're like, oh, that feels so much better. Now I can go down and pick up my grandchild better. Or now I can perform that squat better when I go back and do my exercise. So it's, you know, a lot of different little tweaks. It doesn't have to be a big one to be uh, very successful in helping them. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, I think you break up, bring up a great point about position tweaks that, you know, there are what, 27 common position tweaks and 63 total position tweaks if you utilize sagittal frontal transverse plane of anterior, posterior, narrow, wide, external, internal rotation um, that you can do both with the feet and the hands, right? And then you could combine, I guess then you could make it what, 126 if you combine I don't know, maybe you got, if you could actually get it in 126 if you modify feet and hand positions in a prone position. Um, but that when you start to think about that and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, 
I have a bunch of different exercises in just by changing position that I can do with the patient. Yeah. We'll do something here a lot called the squat matrix. So you can do a squat with somebody, but you can also do a squat matrix where you have them do it normal squat, feet just hip width apart, right foot forward, left foot forward, wide stance, narrow stance, toes out, toes in. And that's just if you're playing motions, then you can combine those and actually make it look more like um, my, my person's a dancer or my person's a whatever they may be, football player. Are, are their squats starting to look like what they need to be able to do? That's perfect. Another one with position that I um, feel like I would have loved to know earlier on because I probably could have made a lot of programs more fun for people is people that are non-weight-bearing, you can use, if they're non-weight-bearing ankle, you can use the kneeling and half-kneeling position and get a lot of good cardio and a lot of good um, upper extremity and core facilitation with that position. Um, so don't be afraid to, especially if they're successful. They have to be successful getting to and getting out of that position, of course, but um, that's one that I'll use a lot with people that are non-weight-bearing and I, where I used to feel stuck, like I couldn't do a whole lot with them. Well, and another thing, talking about position, we're going to go into a couple different things here in a moment, but cervical patients, you know, we do a lot of more success from bottom up drivers to help facilitate movement. Think about also yep. getting them into a modified, you know, prone or quadruped position where they can do arm drivers or they're getting their upper extremities and abdominal and going in three directions where gravity is now causing some different things to occur along with the movement below the neck. So when we look at these different positions, you know, we're going to go on these other tweaks your creativity is your only limitation, but you've always got to make sure that you're facilitating what we want from a, a comfort, a capability uh, as well. And then I would go Absolutely. back to, you know, why are you doing that, right? So going mm -hmm. back to that question that Jen always. posed us earlier is, yeah. okay, if you're going to start to utilize some of this tweakology, well, why are you doing it? And, and why does it apply to that patient in that? So I, I want to make sure our listeners, as they're going through this and they're starting to think about how they can make modifications to exercises is, all right, well, do you still understand why you're doing that? So, okay. Yep. Okay, keep going. Beautiful. Next one is driver. Driver <laughs> is our term for what is actually producing the motion. You can have multiple drivers throughout the body. Um, what are some drivers that you use for some certain patients that you have? So, Jen, I think a lot of things I like to do are from uh, maybe, a, as I mentioned, that bottom-up perspective if I'm looking at cervical. So, am I driving with the arms or am I doing an eye driver? I mean, I'm having them facilitate movement with their eyes in a particular direction. So, if I'm having mm -hmm. them look straight ahead and they're standing and I say, I want to take both your arms, rotate to the right as far as you can – they're going to get a relative left rotation in their neck. And that usually is much more comfortable saying, I want you to sit there and turn your head as far as you can. And they can control right. it. And then if they're looking a certain distance, let's say I say, I want you to look to the right as far as you can. And they do that. Okay, we do this and we do this and we do this movement. And then they go back and they can self-test. So I can do that in the clinic and they can also do that at home as part of their home program. So these, that's just an example of a driver. Um, I might want to get a little it. bit of a you know, range of motion when I'm having doing a reach test. I want more rotation at the hip. I can have them stand on one leg and get that contralateral side going in a certain movement pattern that I want to facilitate mobility and or stability. And that's where it starts getting fun. As long as you're describing what you're doing for the patient, he's just making me reach in different weird ways. No, you're trying to prove their success or lack thereof, but always tie it back to what they want to accomplish. And maybe it's baby steps to get to that closer functional uh, process. So other, dri hey. other drivers, so Tori mentioned eye and arm. You can have a nose driver, a pelvis driver, 
a knee driver, a foot driver, and then breath. And I think oftentimes breath is the one that some schools of thought forget about and other schools of thought overemphasize. But yep. point of reference, on average, we're breathing about 23,000 times a day. So you can use your breath as a driver to facilitate increased success of a movement. Wow. That's awesome. That's um, mic drop quality right there. That's mic drop quality. <laughs> that's for sure. Blind squirrel with the, with the mic drop. I like it. <laughs> um, there is not much I could add to that, but I think um, realizing that the eyes are a driver and that they produce motion. What if, you know, if I'm talking like Tori was a second ago, he's talking bottom up. I want to move. If I keep my head still and I move my arms and I move my thoracic spine or my hips below it, I'm getting a reverse rotation up into my neck. Um, but also thinking top down, if you're moving your eyes and looking a certain direction, you're going to produce a, a relative rotation, different coupled mo movements, depending on where you're having your patient look. Um, but you can always drive the eyes, drive the head and all the other ones that Dan was talking about. Um, I think we get kind of stuck in a rut of, I'm going to have a reach or I'm going to have them just point their foot here and here. Don't forget that there's a lot of different other uh, avenues you can go down there. So we're four down. we got six to go. The next one is direction. So direction is kind of an obvious one, but how do you guys use direction? So I'll break direction down into the six, six main movements, so anterior, posterior, uh, same side lateral, opposite side lateral, same side rotational and opposite side rotational. Um, those mm -hmm. are the six main cardinal planes that I would, cardinal movements, I guess, that I, that I utilize. And then any combination of those. So anterior, same side, anterior, opposite side, posterior, same side, posterior, opposite side, and then any combination thereof. Um, that's, I think, what I can think of, of direction mm -hmm. in that regard. Yeah, just the different, so many different angles you can use with people. And if we're just doing forward punches at the cable cross, is that everything that somebody's going to have to do? Do they have to reach across their body? Would they have to reach, you know, at an angle and down? Or, um, again, like we've said with most all of these, is it looking like them being successful doing what they need to do? Yeah, and one of the things when you look at your flow sheet, are you considering those planes of motion because our body naturally goes through all those planes every day. So when I look at, am I missing a plane of motion? And if so, why? Um, and can I incorporate that in a way that is safe within a particular movement pattern that helps them achieve what they want to accomplish? So just looking at that, if you want to just take a big step back and say, okay, I'm going to look at this. Do I have three planes of motion in the program? And then the other observational essentials you can throw in there. That's a really easy nugget that you can take away when you just look at every single patient. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and one thing I wish I would have been taught way before I actually learned it was that your patients that you feel like aren't successful in the sagittal plane, like your kyphosis, I, don't, I can't get thoracic extension. A lot of times going in rotation or going frontal plane first and what's most successful is going to be a lot easier and actually beget you motion into the sagittal plane as opposed to just beating on extension itself. Um, That's a great clinical example right there. Great clinical that example. One, that one was a light bulb for me. Yeah, <laughs> and it was a lot less frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's hard, hard to work with people who aren't successful and you keep beating that, that unsuccessful motion. Um, 
so the next one's going to be height. So the direction of what, or the, the verticality of which you're moving with people. Comment on that. Well, I think when we look at that, I try to make it as, once again, going back to the function. So you hear people say with shoulder problems, hard for me to reach up and, and get into a, a cupboard or to get into the refrigerator and get something out of there. So I try to find out what height they need to work on and try to work in that direction. If I'm working with an athlete, you have to load before you explode. I mean, you've got to go into a direction, then go to the opposite direction. And so I really try to figure out where their success is and try to build upon that, whether it's a plane of motion, whether it's a height. So it's a height within that plane of motion. So is it sagittal or when they reach out to the side, is that where I need to go? So I really try to find those things out through the testing. Just giving an exercise is one thing, but are you able to once again do a test retest? The test might become the exercise. Yeah, I'll add, add to that and say, okay, well, what am I trying to facilitate by that height? So if I reach overhead, what does that facilitate? What does that quote unquote turn on and or turn off? If I reach at head height or shoulder height, same thing. If I reach at belly button or waist height, same thing. If I reach at knee height or ankle height or ground height or below ground height, if I'm standing on a step, right? Like what do the, what does that change in height with a reach facilitate and or inhibit? Um, and I think that combining that with what Tori alluded to, to help them better train their system to have success with that functional activity is huge. Yeah. Yeah. That was what I was going to say is just because, you know, I have pain reaching my arm overhead doesn't mean that I can't go halfway there and then come back down from it. And can I document that they can go to 110 this day and then I work on them and they go to 135 and the next time they come in and you're just changing that height and moving it up, up, up as they're more successful. It doesn't mean that you can't go those motions. It just means you need to be uh, more cognizant of where they're successful within it. Um, and I love what you said about the success or what you're inhibiting versus what you're facilitating with certain heights because we think about if I am going to reach down, what am I going to load? And what, you know, if I'm somebody that's blown a disc in my back, am I going to necessarily want to reach down very far right now? Maybe not. Um, but could I reach out and could I get facilitation of muscles by doing that that I wouldn't? that I probably have been inhibiting for a long time. And then can I tweak that over time to make it lower and lower and lower progressively, as opposed to just being afraid to train it in the first place. Um, okay. The next one is distance. So how far people are going with different movements? How do you use this? Well, that's a really good question. When we look at what we're trying to do from a testing to an exercise. So, People, you know, for example, want to be able to reach a certain distance. Maybe they're trying to run a certain distance. And so being able to take a look at that, that, that distance might be a reach test. That distance might be a, a distance they're trying to run, which we're going to be assessing their ability to do that over a period of time. Um, I really try to find a way that with a grid to measure that success or lack thereof. Um, I try to make sure that if they're going to run, I want them to run for a certain amount of time inside or outside these walls, depending on the, the duration uh, and distance it's going to be. I want to make sure that it's, once again, going to be specific to their needs. But th for me, that's something where I want to be able to show them that success. Yeah. An another way to look at distance besides using a, a grid and, and measuring it actually with centimeters and comparing side to side would be 
what's the patient's self-selected distance? And that can give you an idea of fear slash apprehension. Um, so are they moving in the initial phases, you know, the initial portion of their range of motion? And, and I think that there's some subjectivity to that, right? Are they comfortable yeah. going mid-range or do they get all the way to end range? And then, you know, from our movement science expertise, what are we seeing from a, a qualitative standpoint during those those phases or those, you know, that, that mid or initial mid or end range movement from a distance standpoint? Yeah, I feel like um, end range is one that is, Undertrained, probably, and we need to be more um, aware of people, you know, especially our younger athletes that want to be able to move as much as they can. Can they control it? And are we training them towards end ranges and all different types of motions? Yeah, Jen, I think you say that really well, but that when we try to go to the end range, that's that transitional or transformational zone. And that's where a lot of injuries occur. I call it a box, right? So you've got a box of movement. And you you learn to live there. And then all of a sudden, you don't use it as much, and that box gets a little smaller. And when you go to use that distance for that box, you hit the end. You hit the walls, and that's when an injury can occur. And maybe it's one time because you hit it hard, or maybe it's repetitively. The other thing is therapists, when we look at that, I, I use the description of when we train – we want to get the person as close to the edge without taking them over. So you want to get the best view of the Grand Canyon when you go. If you're too far back, you're not getting a great view. If you get too close to the edge, you might tip over, and that's really bad. <laughs> so when we look at that, when we look at training, we want to be able to successfully challenge them as close to the edge as possible, get the optimal amount out of whatever we're trying to accomplish. So I really say, think that's important that we go to that distance and successfully challenge them in that whatever it might be because that's so important to their long-term accomplishment. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Um, couldn't have said it better, actually. So we can move on from that. And the next one is going to be rate. So how fast are we training our people? Yeah, I think I think rate, oftentimes we think, oh, they have to do it faster, right? <clears throat> But sometimes when you ask a patient to slow it down, that's when you really may expose and find those slight nuances that unlock the next 10 steps to help them actually become successful. So when I yep. think about with some people that want to go fast all the time and I ask them to do it slow, that may really challenge their stability. And if I really challenge their stability... I may realize that's where their mechanical breakdown or their tissue breakdown or that repetitive injury really happens because they don't know how to properly stabilize as they move through said movement. Yep. People use momentum all the time. When they take, when you take that away from them, you see how good is your actual control? Can I slow you down and you can actually control this or not? Do I have to add other variables to your environment that might increase your stability? Yeah, I'll just give a really quick patient example. I was working with a professional baseball player, um, and when I had him do things at baseball speed, um, no issues, really. Like It was really hard for me to find any quote-unquote faults and flaws. But when I said, hey, I need you to do this at half speed, oh my gosh, he could barely stand on one foot. Um, uh -huh. You know, he, he could barely do a Romanian deadlift at half speed, but I asked him to do it fast and he had no problem with it. So I'm like, okay, here's, here's what I see. Here's what we really need to work on. You have the speed component down. We actually, 
the fast component of rate down. We need to work on the slow component of rate. And that's really when we helped um, that. That's really when I helped that individual actually become, you know, uh, play 300 and some odd games in a row without missing a game due to injury. So that, yep. you know, and he attributed that to that. So that was huge. That's gold. Absolute gold. I think on the opposite side, um, for example, a tennis player, I have somebody that I have, I've given them a resistance, a weight in their hand, the cable cross, whatever it may be, and I'm doing internal rotation with a step that kind of simulates a forehand, and they're used to doing 40, 50, however many they do. Am I tweaking that to where they have to actually go and come back very quickly in a reaction type way that they're going to have to do whenever they're actually playing? Are we making things faster even even when we're using machines? Yeah, if we take a step back and even go to the testing, sometimes we can pick up a, a, the big rocks when somebody's walking or running, but take a video of it and slow it down so you can maybe yep. pick up a little bit more information that wasn't as easily seen. Uh, and then if I go into one of my pet peeves on a flow sheet, um, I sometimes will see F-A-T. Fat. And I'm like, okay, we're not calling the patient fat. That must be short for fatigue. Well, is it truly fatigue or is it just person got bored of doing that movement pattern? So I try to give them a more specific duration, whether it's 30 seconds or a minute, but you measure their success in that. That might be quantitatively. So they might be doing a fast step up for a minute. How many times are they doing that? Are they doing it 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever it is? Then they can measure their success the next time. So therefore, you're looking at the quantity and the quality. So you might have them do it for a minute, but measure it within that minute, both in regards to how many times they're doing the movement pattern and the quality of the movement pattern at the same time. Super valuable. Super valuable. Two more, fellas. Last but not, or the penultimate one is load. So what is a load to you and how do you tweak that through the day? It's more than just putting weight on a stack. (laughs) I think that's the easy thing, right? When I think about load, it also goes back into, you know, repetition. So we're doing a certain amount for a certain amount of weight for a certain amount of repetitions. Once again, are we giving them a range that we're setting their goal for, for whatever they're trying to accomplish? Are we saying just do this many? That's, I think, giving them a specific number. Sometimes you got to encourage people to get to a number. So that might be a circumstance. Most of the time I try to give them a zone they're trying to accomplish. The other part of that is the body position. How are we giving them a load with gravity? So trying to bias that position we talked about earlier to maybe challenge a certain body area, body part. But I think gravity is a huge component. You can do an entire workout and not put them on a machine. So I think that's where you really try to challenge because at home, they're not going to have machines most of the time. Uh, They might not go to the gym. So how are you using gravity and biasing these other observational essentials with that load to help them be challenged or more successful? Yeah, I would say when I use load, you know, whether it's whether it's a machine, whether it's a resistance band, whether it's a TheraLoop, whether it's a dumbbell, whether it's a kettlebell, whether it's a medicine ball, um, it's typically combined with one of the other observational essentials. Um, Yes. Whether it's uh, distance or direction, or driver, or position, um, I would say I'm rarely using load by itself. Uh, Actually, I can't think of very many instances where I'm using load by itself, um, unless it's something that's very, very isolated, which I don't do a ton of isolated things that frequently. Um, But that would be my expectation, or that my, my explanation for load is that it's usually combined with something else, 
one yep. of the other observational essentials. Okay. And last but not least is duration. We've kind of alluded to this a little bit with some of the other ones already. Um, but how do you change duration? How should we be changing duration with our patients? Well, I think kind of Tori alluded to it a little bit, and he got a little fired up. He, he kind of spiked our uh, volume meter a little bit. Um, but, you know, he, he brings up a really good point about the fatigue is, is that fatigue truly to the patient's fatigue, you know, where they've, they've gone to quote-unquote failure, or is that they get bored and so they just say, ah, I'm done, that was long enough, right? So sometimes what I'll encourage a patient, my you know, either myself and or my technician to do is turn their count timer to count up instead of count down because it, when, when it's counting up, there's, there's a different mental fortitude that occurs versus saying, Oh, they want me to do this for two minutes. That may not be that person's fatigue. Right. Um, right. You know, and kind of like Tori alluded to as well, there are times when two times 10 or three times 10 is warranted. But one yeah. of my biggest pet peeves is when I see a patient, post-op ACL or post-op total knee and no offense to these therapists, but they come in with, you know, from a home health or a skilled nursing facility or a hospital. And it says, Oh, I want you to do 10 squats three times a day. And then I want you to do three sets of 10 quad sets. And I want you to do three sets of 10 straight leg raises. Ladies and gentlemen, how many times in a day do we activate our quads? Oh yeah. The research says it's five to 8,000 times a day. So I have an orthopedic surgeon when he does post-op ACL and he sends them in, his post-op instructions are 500,000 to 1 million activations of your quad a day. Patients often laugh at me when I say that. And I say, no, the purpose behind that is I want you to start firing that muscle so that when I put you in a different position or environment or action, you've already started to make that neuromusculoskeletal connection between your brain and that muscle that I want to activate. Yeah. So... I think as a profession, we really have to get away from three sets of 10 and really go to what is our patient need, whether that is a duration of seconds, minutes, or truly challenging them in their sets and reps. I'll end my soapbox there. <laughs> Loved it. Yeah, I would, I would also say that there's advantages to the counting down, which we commonly do. Uh, I remember back uh, when I was in track and the coach would say, run and we just start running we had no idea how long it would be that was really tough because you want to give your max effort but at a certain point you know you probably start tapering off in that effort for whatever reason i think when you give them a certain amount of time and you really encourage them through whatever you know verbal cues you can provide they're going to give their greatest effort they go okay i've got 30 seconds i got to give great effort and they go and they work they work really hard that's an advantage where as long as you're really once again going back into optimizing the duration that they're doing it, I think that's very valuable. So you have to understand what you're trying to accomplish with the goal. I think both of these that Dan talked about and I'm mentioning are advantageous. If you're working with a sport and depending on endurance, where it might be football, where the plays are very short, maybe you're trying to really focus on, okay, how many plays are they on offense, defense? I need to do maybe short bursts, but do them back to back to back, whatever it might be. You're trying to make it as specific for the person as possible. If they're doing situations with the grandkids, Boy, you know, those little kids are probably moving quite a bit. You might have to educate them. Okay, do you get really tired? I'm exhausted. Okay, how do you feel? All right, we will try to make sure that your program is pretty consistent. We're going to move between exercises kind of quick. And the duration of your program needs to be X because of this. 
So I think when you look at that, it goes back to the easy answer with all these observational essentials. It makes it pretty quick when you ask the patient, what do you want to accomplish? Make an exercise, do a test that kind of relates back to that because you really are not doing one of these essentials. You're doing a combination of these, probably all these to some extent and doing them for the best interest of the patient. Beautifully wrapped up for me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So those are the 10 observational essentials. Okay. That's the DNA of movement. And hopefully you can incorporate those. You can use them to beat up your brain a little bit, really challenge yourself to be the best that you can be critically think within the moment with your patients. And that's going to stimulate you. Like I just said in the last burnout podcast, you have to give some energy to get some. So try to give some more energy to your exercise flow sheets. Make sure you're changing them frequently um, and make sure they're starting to look like what your patient said day one, they want to be able to do as long as it's realistic and they're successful within that. Um, anything else to add, guys? Well, I, I mean, you know, as I reflect back on this podcast and the answers that you and Tori gave, I, I really think that when our therapist when our listeners start to um, truly take to heart this information and start to apply it in their day, they're going to start to realize how much more fun it is and how much more fun they see it, it, it is occurring in their patients um, yep. and, in, and, and in the rest of their colleagues and environment and space, right? Now, the, the hard right. part is, is, okay, well, what do I do if I don't know how to take all this information and apply it? Well, the, the, the resource is the Gray Institute. And the Gray Institute yeah. has lots of free blogs and videos out there as well as some, some incredibly great paid content. And that would be a place to go encourage our listeners to seek additional information from. So, you know, Jen, I, I thank you. Awesome. And Tori, I thank you for being a part of this. Um, and Tori's got one last thing here. Yeah, I just want to sure. tie it back together. And thank, thank you both, both of you for this opportunity to speak to your audience. Um, coming back to clinically trying to minimize burnout, Try to challenge yourself so when you're in the environment, you're being as best as possible. Be vulnerable to ask questions of your colleagues. Uh, try to take that con ed where you're not feeling as successful. Take care of your own bodies. We're always trying to take care of everybody else's, but making sure that you're getting yourself in the best ergonomic position. Protect your hands for the long term of your career. And then also, you know, emotionally, when you take a look at all the stressors that happen throughout life, take that time for yourself, whether it is paid time off, uh, taking a break away from the normal where you're going into outside in the middle of your day, whatever it might be. But I think to minimize burnout, because you two are at that point, right? The past seven years where yeah. that could happen. I, I think you two are tremendous therapists. I want to see longevity and career. Don't want you to burn out. There's moments where we're all going to get frustrated, but come back to the fact that we have an amazing profession and we are, have the opportunity to help people and really make changes in their lives. And I think when you do that, you can take a step back, even those moments of frustration and realize what we do is very powerful. And then day to day, all these 10 essential um, uh, observational essentials we talked about with movement are really powerful to make every day unique and to make it fun and to make it specific to the patient. Challenge yourself and it will minimize that burnout. We say challenge can be stressful. No, challenge can be fun too if you really think about it. So thank you very much exactly. for both of you for doing this podcast. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's probably room for another podcast somewhere down the line on exactly what you talked about, taking care of yourself physically, mentally, spiritually. What does that mean um, through the course of a career for a therapist and how people use different aspects of that in order to keep themselves as healthy as possible? Um, so thank you guys for being on my second hosted podcast. Very exciting. Um, 
as always, if you guys have any feedback, questions, we love to hear from you. Give us give us your comments, your questions. Email us at therapistsinmotion at spoonerpt.com. 